Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to our Resurrection Sunday live stream service. So glad you could all join us. Let's uh, open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. We thank you for your goodness and your grace, especially all that this day means to us as Christians. We just thank you, Lord, and ask that you would bless this service and use it for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, let me just uh, start out by saying that uh, we are living in perilous times, difficult times, uh, where the faith of many seems to have grown cold. There are many that have allowed this COVID-19 pandemic to get their eyes off of God and onto this storm we find ourselves in. And because of it, many Christians are going under in their faith or sinking. Just like Peter, when he stepped out of the boat onto the Sea of Galilee, at the invitation of Jesus, when Jesus had come to me. And so for a while, Peter walked on water. He did the impossible. But almost immediately, he began to, he allowed the waves and the storm to so distract him, to frighten him, that he took his eyes off of Jesus and began to sink. <laughs> Terrified, he cried out quickly, Lord, save me. And immediately, the Lord stretched out his hand and lifted Peter up. And then the Lord said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You see, Peter, you see, Jesus essentially said to Peter, Peter, get out of the boat and come to me, not get out of the boat and drown. Do you realize that no one in the Gospels ever died in Jesus' presence? Now, we know that at least three people were raised by him from the dead. Now, there might have been others. No one ever died in his presence, but at least three people were raised from the dead by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Resurrection Sunday, of course. The day that we celebrate the greatest event, the greatest miracle in the history of mankind, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, as Christians, we believe with all our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. I mean, it's foundational to our faith. You can't be a Christian unless you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And since we believe that, well, it then stands the reason, no matter what comes our way in life, no matter how scary, no matter how seemingly hopeless, listen. It has nothing for our God. Nothing. I have told people over the years who do believe in God, but still have a problem believing in the miracles in the Bible. And I've told them that, look, if you can believe the first verse in the Bible, everything that comes after it, well, that's easy then. It's easy. In other words, if you can believe in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Hebrew word for created is bara which means to call into existence something out of nothing. If you can believe the first verse in the Bible that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, well, it should be easy to believe that Jesus walked on water, that he turned water into wine, that he calmed the storm with just a word, that he multiplied a little boy's sack lunch into a great feast that fed thousands, and even that he raised the dead. I mean, if you can believe that God is so powerful, as to create everything with just the power of his spoken word, then listen, guys, there is no problem, no crisis, there is no adversity you face in life that is impossible for God to overcome and solve. Nothing. I love the words of Jeremiah at this point. Uh, you can just write these references down, but Jeremiah said in chapter 32, verse 17 of his book, he said, Ah, Lord God, behold, 
You have made the heavens and the earth by your great power. There is nothing too hard for you. Now, that's something that God himself affirmed a little later in uh, uh, Jeremiah 32, verse 27, where God said, Behold, I am the Lord God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Well, of course not. You remember when God sent the angel Gabriel to a young Jewish teenager named Mary to announce to her that she had been chosen by God to be the mother of the Messiah and that she would bear a very special child. He would be the son of God and would be virgin born. And then Gabriel added this statement to Mary when he said, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. Do you believe that? With our God, nothing shall be impossible. Pastor Chuck Smith, in his book, Living Water, said this, and I quote, A miracle is something that is humanly impossible, but divinely simple. The difficulty of anything must always be measured by the capacity of the agents doing the work. So when it comes to God as the agent doing the work, the talk of difficulty is absurd, end quote. And Chuck went on to use the illustration of a skyscraper. He said, you know, a skyscraper is an engineering marvel. Uh, just its, its size and all the complex um, systems that go into it, the heating system, air conditioning, fire prevention system, all these things that go into uh, a skyscraper, modern skyscraper. Now, when you're talking about human beings building a skyscraper, it's no problem for those who have been trained to do such a thing. We see it all the time. Everywhere we look in major cities, we see skyscrapers. However, if you're talking about, we'll say, a group of dogs, highly trained dogs, dogs can do a lot of stuff when they're trained, right? But if you're talking about a group of dogs being able to build a skyscraper, well, that goes beyond their ability, all right? That, that, if they're the agents doing the work, it's impossible. When it comes to God as the agent doing the work in our lives, nothing is impossible for him. And yet, why do we still find it easier to pray, we'll say, over a cold than over cancer? I mean, is it harder for God to heal cancer than a cold? Of course not. Yet we bring our own limitations into every situation and seem to kind of impose them upon God. And if it's hard for us or impossible for human beings, well then, you know, how can God do it? Well, because God can do anything. You remember when Paul the Apostle was brought from prison uh, after being accused of inciting riots against the law of Moses. And um, he was allowed to make a case for his innocence before Governor Festus of Judea and uh, primarily before a visiting dignitary named King Agrippa. Let me read to you what Paul said. This comes out of Acts 27, excuse me, Acts 26. In fact, why don't you turn there? Acts 26, starting with verse 2. I'll let you get there. Excuse me, a little drink here. I really love this section. I love what Paul had to say to King Agrippa. But Acts 26, verse 2. Paul said, I am fortunate, King Agrippa, that you are the one hearing my defense today against all these accusations made by the Jewish leaders. For I know that you are, you're an expert on all Jewish customs and controversies. Now, please listen to me patiently. As the Jewish leaders are well aware, 
I was given a thorough Jewish training from my earliest childhood among my own people in Jerusalem. If they would admit it, they know that I have been a member of the Pharisees, the strictest sect of our religion. Now I am on trial because of my hope in the fulfillment of God's promise made to our ancestors. In fact, that is why the 12 tribes of Israel zealously worship God day and night, and they share the same hope I have. Yet, your majesty, they accused me for having this hope. He's talking about Paul was preaching the resurrection of Christ. They are, have put me in jail for preaching the hope of the resurrection. And then he says something in verse 8 I want you to remember. I want you to key in on. Why does it seem incredible to any of you that God can raise the dead? Paul said this because, again, he got himself in trouble with some of the Jewish leaders. This would be the Sadducees. Sadducees, they were a very powerful, well-connected, kind of a religious <laughs> well, they were very uh, aristocracy, uh, uh, aristocracy. Thank you. And but they were the one of the ruling classes. In fact, they were the ones who had the temple concessions and the uh, selling of animals and the changing of money at the temple there that Jesus overturned the table and uh, chased the animals out. But a very powerful, well-connected group of religious leaders, and Paul got them very upset with him. Because Paul went around preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death, nor of angels or miracles or anything else of a supernatural nature. And so they got very upset with Paul and had him thrown into prison and so on. But Paul is appealing now to King Agrippa. Now, King Agrippa was not saved, but he was a believer in the God of Israel and a student of Jewish scripture. And so Paul was appealing to him in a very just very simple, logical way and uh, saying to him, basically, why is it difficult to believe that God, who gives life in the first place, can restore it again for someone who dies? Or in other words, why is it so hard to believe that God, again, the author and giver of life, creator of all things, why is it thought an incredible thing that God can raise or even has raised the dead? The other day when I was uh, busy around the house doing some chores, and yes, I do chores, um, I was thinking about the message, not, not knowing where God wanted to take. I knew it was going to be on the resurrection, of course, Resurrection Sunday, but I, I didn't really know what God wanted, to, you know, where he wanted to go and what, the, you know, what he wanted to, to me to bring forth. And so as I'm you know, busy, as no doubt you, you know, doing chores or whatever, uh, you're thinking about other things. I was thinking about the message, and I just prayed a quick prayer for direction. And immediately, I love when that happens. You know, the psalmist said, answer me speedily. Well, sometimes God does. And almost immediately, he brought to my mind the statement of Paul to Agrippa. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? As soon as the Lord popped that statement into my head, I thought, you know, that could apply to any problem or situation we face in life. If God can raise a dead body and give it new life, why can't he resurrect a dead marriage and breathe new life into it? Or a dead faith or a dead walk, why can't he breathe life or resurrect uh, dead finances or a business or a dead economy like many are uh, terrified of that this economy is not going to come back to life again and they're going to be out of work permanently and lose business? I mean, it's a very scary time. But, but you know, fill in the blank, whatever. 
I mean, if God can raise a dead body and breathe new life into it, why can't God raise whatever? You fill in the blank and breathe new life into it. See, Paul is just presenting to this King Agrippa some very basic sound logic uh, to a man who claimed to be a believer in the God of Israel. And, we're, and what he's saying is, King Agrippa, we're on the same page in the sense we both believe in the God of Israel, that he is an awesome God. When you're talking about Almighty, the Almighty God of the universe, is there anything too hard or even hard at all for him? And yet, like Peter on the Sea of Galilee, when he doubted the word of the Lord and began to sink, we too often doubt his word to us, take our eyes off of him in difficult situations and start to drown in the waves of our own problems. And yet we cry out to him for help. And being as kind and gracious as he is, he rescues us, but then gently chides us like he did Peter. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I mean, that's an excellent question, an excellent question. Why do many of God's children doubt the outcome of anything he tells us to do or doubt the certainty of any promise he has given to us in his word? Jesus told us why. Because of a lack of faith. He said, oh, you of little faith. Let me put it another way. The more faith we have in God, the less unbelief we'll have in our hearts. And the less faith we have, the more unbelief will fill our heart. And listen, guys, very important. Unbelief will kill the power of God in our lives. Turn to Matthew chapter 13. I want to read verse 58 to you. You should probably underline it. It's that important. At least I think it is. Remembering that unbelief will kill the power of God in our lives. God may want to work. But our unbelief will hinder what God wants to do. And in Matthew chapter 13, verse 58, it talks about how that Jesus went back to his hometown of Nazareth, where he had grown up. Now, he was born in Bethlehem, of course, but then the family moved back to Nazareth. And Jesus grew up there. And, of course, it's like the old Keith Green song, I'm dating myself, the old Keith Green song, where the line, one of the lines says, you know, uh, prophets don't grow up from little boys. And so when he came back to his hometown, proclaiming now to be a prophet, uh, many scoffed at him, thought he was crazy, mocked him, and they didn't believe what he had to say uh, about himself or anything else for that matter. And it says that he did not do many mighty works, the Greek is, he didn't do many healings or miracles among them because of their unbelief. It sounds like he wanted to, but their unbelief was hindering the work he wanted to do in their midst. You remember in Matthew 17, how that Jesus had previously given his disciples the power to cast out demons. And then at one point, he goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, while most of his disciples stood back in the valley there. And while they were in the valley, a father came to the disciples with his demon-possessed boy and asked them to cast the demon out. Well, they couldn't. They couldn't. And so when Jesus finally came down, the father went up to Jesus, and Jesus cast the demon out. And then later on, the disciples asked him, well, how come we couldn't cast it out? And Jesus simply said in verse 20, because of your unbelief, because of your unbelief. Guys, biblical faith is a channel or a conduit that connects us to God. It allows the power of God to flow from him into our lives in the form of answered prayers, grace to live the Christian life, and power for him to work 
power for him to work miracles and, and solve seemingly impossible problems. Look, I'm not saying that God is dependent on our faith to work. He's got to do whatever he wants. But he often will choose not to work where faith is not present, as the scriptures we just read a minute ago indicate. Faith is a very important subject in the Bible. In fact, faith is a topic that flows through the Bible all the way from Genesis to Revelation. The Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, there are basically two kinds of faith that a person can exercise. Saving faith and then practical faith. To come to Jesus for salvation requires one kind of faith. And the walk with Jesus in daily fellowship requires another kind of faith. Saving faith is the faith of a moment which affects my eternity. Practical faith is moment-by-moment faith which affects my daily life. A classic passage, and there's many we could give, but a classic passage with regard to saving faith, I think would be Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, where Paul said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Salvation is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then a classic verse in the New Testament, which actually quotes the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 4, but uh, is repeated by the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 38. Uh, a great verse on practical faith simply says, Now the just shall live by faith. Yeah, get saved by faith, right, saving faith. But then that's just the beginning. The just, the righteous, the redeemed shall now live by faith every single day. But what exactly is faith? What exactly is faith? Well, the best definition of faith comes right out of God's word. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm sure you all know this verse. Classic verse on faith. Where the writer says, Hebrews 11 verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Let me read it to you out of the NIV. I think it comes through even a little clearer. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Guys, faith is always tied to things hoped for, never to things we have already never to things that have already come to pass, even as Paul said in Romans 8, verse 24, hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? In other words, I don't hope for what I have. I, I'm hoping for what I don't have yet. Maybe a promise that God has given me in his word. That's what hope is. It, it's hope that, you know, that what God has promised is going to be mine eventually, all right? Remember now, remember, we're still talking about how nothing is impossible for God, that he is the God of miracles. He is the God that raises the dead. But listen, the power, his power, will only flow into our lives through faith. It reminds me of a woman in the Gospels who was desperate to be healed. You remember this story. It comes out of Matthew chapter 5, verses 25 through, I don't know, about 31 or so. But um, you don't have to turn to it, but I'll just read it to you. Uh, this was a woman who was desperate to be healed. It says in verse 25, I'm sorry, did I say Matthew? I meant Mark 5, verse 25. 
Now a certain woman had a flow of blood. She was hemorrhaging 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She's desperate now. She has no money left. Nobody can cure her. Verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. And the idea is well right now, immediately. Look, it's one thing to have faith for someday. It's another thing to have faith for right now. Remember when Lazarus died. Lazarus, Martha, and Mary were a family that Jesus was very close to. And uh, one day Jesus gets word that, that Lazarus is very sick, come quickly, uh, that you might heal him. But Jesus purposely sticks around for a couple days, makes the two-day journey to Bethany. And by that time, Lazarus has been dead and buried for four days. When Martha hears that Jesus is, you know, on the outskirts of town, she gets up from the house and runs out to meet him, falls at his feet, and, and basically says to the Lord, Lord, where were you? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, nobody ever died in Jesus' presence. And Jesus said to her, Martha, your brother will live again. And she said, yes, I know, Lord, at the resurrection of the last day. And he said, you know, she had faith in the future, some future resurrection. Jesus said, well, I'm the resurrection and the life. Martha, he who believes in me, though they may die, they shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Martha, you need to have faith for the moment. Not just faith for the future. Look, too many Christians have faith for the future, but no faith for the present. For the present. Reminds me of a story of a little church in a rural area in our country, a farming community that was going through a drought. And the pastor, in desperation, says, Look, we need to come to the church this Wednesday night and have a prayer meeting asking God to send rain and so on. And so all the people showed up, the church was packed, and the pastor got behind the pulpit and said, I'm disappointed that none of you came here tonight with the faith to see God give us rain. And they were like, what do you mean, pastor? We're all here, we're ready to pray. He said, I don't see one of you that has brought an umbrella. Nobody has brought an umbrella. If you really trusted that God was going to work, you would have brought umbrellas. Good point, good point. Look, Jesus did say all things are possible to him or her who believes. Guys, listen. Possible, not guaranteed. Look, not even desperate faith for the present can guarantee that God will work a healing or a miracle on your behalf at that moment. But listen, stay desperate. Stay desperate. Believing and praying, which is the best place for you to be in, if you're going to see God work. There was a, um, a passage in the devotional streams in the desert. I like to read to you. And it's about Psalm 107, which you can read on your own. But uh, the theme of it is desperation. Let me read it to you. It, it goes like this. Psalm 107 is filled with stories of God's lavish love. In every story of deliverance, it was humankind coming to the point of desperation that gave God his opportunity to act. Arriving at their wit's end, you might say, of desperation was the beginning of God's power. Study once more the prayer of Asa, Jehoshaphat, and Hezekiah, when they were severely troubled, not knowing what to do. Go over the history of Nehemiah, Daniel, Hosea, and Habakkuk. 
Stand with awe in the darkness of Gethsemane and linger by the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea's garden through those difficult days. Call to account the witness of the early church and ask the apostles to relate the story of their desperate days. Desperation is better than despair. Remember, our faith did not create our desperate days. Faith's work is to sustain us through those days and to see them through and to see the problems solved by the grace of God. Yet the only alternative to desperate faith is despair. You don't want to go there. Faith holds on and prevails, end quote. Well, then back in Mark 5, again, verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, this woman with this issue of blood, this who was hemorrhaging for 12 years, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Verse 29, immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched me? Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? I mean, they're a little incredulous. I mean, Lord, who touched you? Who hasn't touched you? The crowd is thronging you on every side. And he said, Well, this touch was different. I felt power go out of me. You see, her touch was a different touch from everybody else in the crowd. Their touch was incidental. Hers was deliberate. Guys, living in a Christian quote-unquote society like ours, people can't help coming in contact with Jesus. I mean, they have to come in contact with him at certain times of the year, Christmas, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. They come in contact with him through other Christians that they may work with or live next door to. They come in contact with him as they're, you know, surfing the TV, you know, to try to find a program or turning the stations, uh, working through the stations on their radio. You know, suddenly a preacher will pop up preaching the gospel. They hear a, uh, something that, that deals with Jesus and so on. So, you know, they're exposed to Jesus. They come in contact with Jesus. But listen. It's an incidental contact on their part, occurring merely by chance and without, without intention. And as they, and as such, they really never receive any of the life and power and healing of Jesus in their life. It's because to receive anything from Jesus, there must be, listen, a conscious, deliberate touch of faith like this woman did. I mean, again, her touch was different. Hers was a touch of faith that allowed the power of God to flow into her life. Jesus said, somebody touch me. This was, this was a touch that was different. Someone touched me for I perceived power going out of me. She reached out and touched. She said in her heart, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, his clothes, I know I'll be healed. And so she reached out and touched Jesus by faith. And immediately the power of God flowed from him into her, and she was healed. Guys, there's a lot of Christians who come in contact with Jesus at church or as they read the Bible, as they go to a prayer meeting or a Christian concert, who really never experience his power in their life. Now, they know it. They, they know there's a lack of power. 
They're not sure why. Some of them have just told to themselves, well, this is just normal. Uh, that power was for the first century. It's not for today. I'm normal. Others are disturbed by it. Why is my life so powerless when the Bible promises the children of God, we will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon us? What they don't realize oftentimes is that they have wrapped themselves in pride, carnality, and or unbelief. And as such, they have, you know, quote unquote, insulated themselves from really being able to come in contact with Jesus, where there is a real connection made that would allow the life and the power that is in him to flow into their life. Guys, to make a genuine connection with Jesus, all the insulation must be stripped away and you must come naked, if you will. Naked in soul and heart, open and honest and in humility, reaching out to touch him by faith if you're ever going to receive anything from him. That's the problem. Too many people come to God with, with facades, you know, and uh, they will pray these very spiritual sounding prayers. Well, now, Lord, you know I don't love that co-worker as I should. Well, that, that's a lie. You're not being honest. Well, you should say to the Lord, Lord, you know, I can't stand that guy. I hate his guts. But I know as a Christian, it's wrong to hate anybody. And I, I want to love this guy. But I need your grace. Hey, that's honest. That's honest. God blesses honesty, nakedness, openness, okay? I mean, this idea that uh, people come to him and, you know, they've got the facade on. They're trying to be super spiritual. You're not pulling the wool over God's eyes. Strip it all away. You want to connect with Jesus? You want the power of God to flow into your life? Strip all that nonsense away and come open and naked, honest, uh, and, and tell God what's really going on in your heart. He knows anyways. You might as well come clean because that's the only way he's going to really begin to work in and through your life. Look, something else before we move on. Something else about, about this gal. She stepped out in faith and chose to come into contact with Jesus. She went to Jesus. So many Christians are waiting for God to come to them, okay, to do something for them. But God is waiting for them to step out in faith and do something for him. I'm not advocating trying to lead God. The point I'm making is simply this. If we take the initiative to step out in faith, look, God will reward us. He might reward us by doing something incredible in our lives for his glory. But God will often reward a person with power who takes a step in faith, just like Peter stepped out of the boat by faith and did the miraculous, at least for a while. I mean, some there are people that criticize Peter. Maybe the other disciples kind of criticized him behind his back, that uh, his faith wasn't strong enough to keep him walking on that water. Look at Peter, how foolish. He didn't have enough faith to keep walking on the water. He began to sink. I'll tell you what, Peter failed, but not because he didn't take a step in faith, all right? He took a step in faith and failed, that's true. But failure doesn't hurt the kingdom of God, all right? Failure is just a part of the Christian life. In fact, it's good that we fail because we learn to depend on God more and we grow, all right? So anybody who wants to mock Peter, uh, even those 11 other guys in that boat, look, at least Peter stepped out by faith. At least Peter took a chance and for a while he did the miraculous. 
That's more to be said for the 11 other guys that stayed in the boat and played it safe, who never stepped out in faith, who never uh, knew what it was like to, to walk on water. There's a lot of Christians who want to criticize other Christians who take steps in faith and fail when they themselves are guilty of playing it safe, staying in their comfort zone, and they never step out to do anything for God. Again, failure doesn't hurt the kingdom of God. Unbelief does. The kind of unbelief that causes a person to stay nice and comfortable in church or in their home and never step out in faith to do anything for God and yet criticize everybody else who does. The only hindrance to how God will use us is unbelief. Again, Matthew uh, 13, 58, Jesus wanted to work in Nazareth, but because of their unbelief, he you know, maybe healed a few colds or whatever, but he didn't do anything mighty among them, even though I believe he wanted to. And that's why, guys, we're spending some time this morning on the subject of faith and how it is connected to hope. Again, Hebrews 11, verse 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for. As we have said in the past, biblical hope is never a maybe hope or, an, or a hope so hope. It's always a certain hope, a settled fact, a sure thing kind of hope. And the reason that biblical hope is a sure thing is because it is always tied to a promise of God, and God cannot lie. God made some pretty incredible promises to Abraham, which we talked about a few weeks ago. But it says in Romans chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger. In this he brought glory to God. Glory to God. He was fully convinced that God was able to do whatever he promises. Are you convinced that God is able to do for you whatever he has promised? Often we say, well, I know God can do it. I don't think he will do it for me. Maybe for him or her, but not for me. Well, why not? Why not? You're his child, aren't you? Are those promises not for you? Of course they are. Look, let me just say this. God is gracious. God is gracious. And will often give us things we ask for, even, even if he hasn't specifically promised those things to us in his word. You know, maybe a new bike for your son or your daughter or a nice vacation for the family that, you know, you can't afford. Or like he did for me and my family many years ago uh, when I said, Lord, we have no money. It's Christmas time and the kids, I got no money to buy the, the kids Christmas gifts and Lord, I know you haven't promised me Christmas gifts for my kids, but I'm asking you, Lord, to please do something to... And sure enough, he did. He did. Gave us a wonderful Christmas. And I just thank him for that. I just thank him for that. There, there are many times when God will graciously provide non-essentials, even luxuries at times when we ask him, because he is kind and does love to bless his children. However, however, these things are not promised to us, and therefore are not a sure hope. Now, what he has promised us is the forgiveness for our sins and the gift of eternal life when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. That's true. Furthermore, God has promised that after we have put our faith in Jesus, he has promised to provide our physical needs, food, clothing, shelter, because he is our father, we are his children, and every good and decent father provides for his kids. And of course, God is more than decent. He is perfect, the perfect parent. Peter said, 
that the Lord has given to his children many great and precious promises. Everything we need for life and godliness. And so these promises become, listen, the focus of our faith and the certainty of our hope that what God has promised, yes, he's able to perform, and guess what? He absolutely will do for us if we will just trust him. Again, Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Listen, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is believing that, listen, this is very important. Faith is believing that you already own what God has promised you in his word, even if you can't yet see it with your eyes or touch it with your hands. You know, because God has promised it, it's a done deal. It's a sure thing. I'm just waiting to receive uh, what he has promised. It's a sure thing. I, I trust that, right? The word evidence, faith is, is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The word evidence simply means conviction or proof. In the Greek, the word is a legal term, meaning evidence that is acceptable in a court of law. Guys, evidence is something you take into court to prove your case. And if it's a criminal trial, to get a conviction, to bring the jury to a decision, a verdict based on the evidence. Look, biblical faith is not a blind leap in the dark, as some propose it is. It is not a blind leap into the darkness. It is reasonable and built on many, as Peter said, many infallible proofs, proofs that will stand up as evidence in any court of law. Years ago, I remember reading a book by Josh McDowell called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. The whole thing was about the evidence of the Christian faith, how it was irrefutable. But in that book, he related the story of two Oxford University professors, Lord Littleton and Benjamin Gilbert West. These two atheist professors decided that together they would deliver what they believed would be the fatal blow to Christianity and wipe it out once and for all. The two main issues they felt they needed to refute was, first of all, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle. Now, I said, well, why that? Because think about this from a psychological standpoint. Saul of Tarsus was the premier antagonist against Christianity in the beginning, right? I mean, he would, he would get letters from the high priest and go into Christians' houses and drag them out to stand trial in Jerusalem. I mean, he was so zealous for the law because he felt that Christianity was a cult and Christians were, uh, were being used by the devil to uh, destroy uh, Judaism, that he felt it was his mission to, uh, to attack them and to stamp out this cult called Christianity. You remember the story one day on, as he was going up to Damascus on the road there, having letters to drag some Christians out of Damascus, out of their homes up there and bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial. He met the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, who appeared to him and got saved, got saved. Well, he becomes at that, seemingly overnight, in fact, I think it probably was overnight. He goes from the greatest antagonist of the Christian faith to the greatest champion of the Christian faith. And, and there are people that were like, well, how could this, how could this be? What would cause a man to be going 100 miles an hour in one direction against Christianity, and then all of a sudden, almost instantaneously, turn and go 100 miles uh, an hour in the opposite direction defending Christianity? Well, these two guys said, you know what? 
There's an explanation for it. We're going to find out. We're going to refute that whole deal. What Paul said was later on, the reason that you know he had such a dramatic turnaround was because he had seen the risen Christ. So they wanted to refute the conversion of Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle and, of course, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Lord Littleton chose the conversion of Saul and Benjamin West chose the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Both took a leave of absence from the university and went their separate ways to do their research. And each wound up, through the research they did, each wound up becoming a Christian. But they were ashamed to tell the other that they had become a Christian. And when they finally fessed up, they realized that they had both become Christians. Guys, listen, by the sheer force of conviction based on the evidence they uncovered. And yes, of course, the power of the Holy Spirit. It was the evidence, not feelings or emotions. It was the, the these guys were lawyers. They were, they were law professors. They understood evidence. And as they gathered it, they realized it was irrefutably pointing to the reality that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Saul of Tarsus had seen the risen Christ and become a champion of the cross. That Christianity, for a lot of reasons, was absolutely true. And because of the just the conviction of the evidence that they saw, they became Christians. And instead of writing a book refuting Christianity, they ended up writing a book proving Christianity called Observations of the History and the Evidences for the Resurrection. And here's what they said. They said, any person who rejects Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead does so not on the basis of evidence, but on the basis of ignorance and or stubborn, willful unbelief, end quote. Simon Greenleaf, the famous 19th century professor of law at Harvard wrote, and I quote, All that Christianity asks, asks of men is that they would treat its evidences as they treat the, the evidence of any other thing in a court of law. And any other evidence that uh, is presented in a court of law, if people would just be honest and fair and evaluate the evidence of the Christian faith as they would any, you know, evidence in a court of law, they would see that Christianity is proven to be true. Along those lines, noted historian and Oxford professor Thomas Arnold wrote, and I quote, The evidence for our Lord's life and death and resurrection may be and often has been shown to be satisfactory. It is good according to the common rules for distinguishing good evidence from bad. Thousands and ten thousands of persons have gone through it piece by piece as carefully as every judge summoning, summing upon a most important case. I have myself done it many times over, not to persuade others, but to satisfy myself. I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine the weight of evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by either, excuse me, which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. End quote. All right, let me say in closing, let me say once again, we are living in perilous times. Guys, these are times that demand faith if we're going to survive as Christians. They demand faith in God. But we're living in perilous times. 
where people's hearts are failing them for fear of those things that are coming upon the earth. Disease, famine, financial ruin, which we're being told that this economy is never going to recover and everything is just going to implode and financial disaster is going to ensue. Others are terrified about global warming. A lot of young people won't even have children because they don't want to bring children into a world that's going to be over in 10 or 12 years as they're being told. Uh, these are just a few of the fears that people have uh, today. In fact, as we quoted Thomas Paine a few weeks ago, as he said uh, centuries ago, these are times that try these are the times that try men's souls. Guys, we must fight, fight the temptation in this day to take our eyes off God and put them on our circumstances. Because if we do, if we get them off of God and get them onto our circumstances, listen, our circumstances will drag us down, destroy our faith, kill our peace, and destroy our relationship with God. And folks, it's already happened to many people who are so discouraged, are in such despair, that they no longer read the word, they no longer pray, they no longer come to church, even before the coronavirus quarantine. They've given up. Um, their faith is gone. Because they're not really drawing their faith from the word of God. It's their feelings and so on. But we must keep our eyes on Jesus. Now more than ever, we're in the home stretch. We must keep our eyes, as the writer of the Hebrews said, on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith. And keep reminding ourselves that we are children of God. Children of God. And that when it comes to our God, listen, nothing shall be impossible, not even raising the dead. Let me end with a true story. I heard this story from one of our Calvary pastors several years ago at a conference, pastor's conference. His name is Pastor Jeff Johnson. He pastors Calvary Chapel in Downey, Downey, California. And I had talked to my wife before service, and she said that, yes, Jeff's wife, Karen, had related, related the same story to a group of pastor's wives at a conference she was at years ago. Um, I might have some of the details a little wrong. The basic, I know what the basic story is, okay? So let me share it with you. Jeff and his family were uh, enjoying uh, an afternoon together as a family, a barbecue, when the, everyone had gone into the house to eat. But somebody left the uh, patio door that led out to the uh, patio area where there was a built-in pool. They left the patio door cracked. Well, no one noticed that Jeff's little granddaughter, who was about two years old, had slipped out that little opening of the door. And by the time they realized she was gone, they looked frantically around the house for her. They went out into the backyard and saw her body laying at the bottom of the pool. Well, they freaked out, of course, and, and called 911. The paramedics rushed over, and they tried to work on this little girl, girl for about 45 minutes, trying to bring her back. She was dead. She was dead. They drove her to the hospital, where she was observed, the body and all, and she was uh, written that uh, she had died. And because this had happened earlier in the afternoon, um, they eventually uh, took the body to the uh, funeral home for burial. Well, as the story goes, of course, the family's devastated. Uh, it's around midnight now. They're still up. They're crying and they're heartbroken, as you can imagine, right? But Jeff said something inside of him kept saying to me, he, he believed it was the voice of God, the Holy Spirit, said, don't give up. Don't lose hope. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. Jeff didn't know what to make of that. This little girl was dead. 
But around midnight, they get a phone call from the funeral director who said to, to Jeff, you better come down here. Something's going on. So they all jumped in a car, rushed down to the funeral home, and there was his little two-year-old granddaughter. She was alive. God had raised her from the dead. Now, Jeff said, you will never tell me that she just passed out and revived. I mean, we're talking hours, like 12 hours since she had died. The paramedics worked on her for 45 minutes and confirmed she was gone. They took her to the hospital. They uh, filled out the certificate of death. This little girl was dead, took her to the funeral home. And yet God raised her from the dead. Why am I sharing this story? Because we often read the Bible and think, okay, yeah, God raised the dead back in the, you know, 2,000 years ago. But he doesn't do that kind of stuff today. Well, isn't our God the same yesterday, today, and forever? I mean, our God still works miracles. Our God still raises the dead. And I'm not saying he's going to raise every dead loved one that you have, uh, you know, that dies, he's going to raise from the dead. I'm not saying that. I just want you to remember that when it comes to our God, nothing is impossible. Nothing is hard for him. And we have to have that kind of faith in these last days. We've got to keep our eyes on him. We've got to trust the promises in his word. And we have to know that he's in control and that everything is happening according to his plan. And I'm his child and I know where I'm going to spend eternity because Jesus is coming back soon to take his church uh, out of here. And when he comes and we hear the trumpet sound and the angel shout and the Lord Jesus says, come up here. Well, in his presence, there will be fullness of joy forevermore. We'll never be out of his presence ever again. And uh, we, will, we will live with him in his kingdom where there's going to be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, and no more death. So we're looking forward to that time. But until then, we must believe that God is on the throne and that our God can do anything. You pray in faith. Whatever you're going through, you pray in faith. You trust your God. And uh, let him just, you know, do what he's going to do. But just trust him to be able and to do miracles because he is a God that works miracles every day. Even though we don't even know about it, he's working even as we speak. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for what this day means to us. Again, Lord, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is absolutely critical to our faith. Without it, we have no faith. Jesus said, because I live, you're going to live also, speaking to his disciples. Because our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, never to die again, and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, in other words, those who believe in Christ that have died. We know that Lord someday is going to come for us, take us to be with him. Until that time, Lord, give us grace to live for you, to keep our eyes on you, and to have faith as we read your word and read your promises and, and trust in your character and how much you love us and how much you have promised to take care of us, Lord. This is a scary situation. A lot of people are wondering if they're ever going to have their job again. Well, Lord, even if not, you'll give them a new job. You'll provide their needs. So, Lord, give us grace. The resurrection of Jesus Christ reminds us that with our God, nothing shall be impossible. And if you can raise someone from the dead, you can certainly raise a dead marriage or a dead financial situation or a dead walk. Uh, Lord, we just praise you. We ask that you would bless us. And fill us afresh with your spirit. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful Resurrection Sunday.